It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Neil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. If you have listened to this podcast before, you know a big theme I like to focus on is how do we prepare for the challenges we are going to face on the planet by the year 2050 because of current projections around climate change and the rate of ecological destruction. More importantly, I like to focus on how we still have a fighting chance to avert the crisis or at least mitigate its negative impacts by using creativity and innovation to develop groundbreaking solutions that can change the way the world produces and consumes food. But if you dig deeper into the problems we're currently facing at a planetary level, and I'm not just talking about ecological or food system problems here, they can all be traced back to the fact that our current education system is largely failing kids. Moreover, children alive on the planet today are the ones that will have to attempt to adapt and survive in an uncertain future where the planet's life support systems like our rainforests and our oceans will be at the brink of collapse. That's why I was very excited to talk to my guests, Rebecca Amos and Jeff King from Muse Global, an international education system offering effective, innovative, and passion-based learning experiences within a plant-based, sustainable environment. Rebecca and Jeff are passionate about transforming education and preparing the change makers of the future. We talk about why education is broken and how Muse School is challenging the conventional paradigm of education and standardized testing with their unique student-focused, passion-based approach. We also talk about the school's commitment to sustainability and plant-based food, as well as the Muse Global Franchise Program, and a whole lot more. This is a big, fascinating, and very important conversation. And trust me, no matter what brought you to this podcast, and whether or not you are interested in the topic of education, or entrepreneurship, or sustainability, you will gain something from this next hour. I hope you enjoy it, and I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. Email us at eftp at eftp.co to share your thoughts or leave a review if you feel so inclined. Jeff and Rebecca from Muse, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. 
Right on, man. We're, we're glad to be here. <laughs> so we're glad, glad to be we're here. We're glad that you're here. <laughs> no, thanks for having me back. As I was telling you both before we hit record, I've been here before uh, when I don't think there was school was on that day. There was uh, it was pretty empty, so I got a nice little tour. And um, as we just discussed, it was probably the year 2014 or 15, mm-hmm. uh, and I was just. I, I still today, when I came back, I could rem- I remember the drive because it was such a unique experience that one hour I spent out here and this whole idea that the students spent most of their days outside and I was just like, where? why wasn't this around <laughs> when I was going to school? Because I hated school. Yeah. I did okay because I learned how to, to fit within the system, but... Uh, that is essentially what I think is the problem with school because you just have to figure out how to hack it versus actually use yeah. it as a place for learning and growing. So yeah. it's funny you say that because I think that's what most parents say when they tour the school. They kind of forget that they have their kids that they're touring the school about and they're like, um, I wish I had this for me or can I enroll? Or, you know, those are kind of the common themes. You know? Yeah, you should start some some uh, evening classes right. for, for the parents as well. We thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but let's go back to the beginning. I mean, how, how did you get this idea to launch such a unique and different school? Where did this come from? And I can't imagine the process of, of actually turning that into reality must have been easy. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, it's been quite an interesting journey. Um, my background is in education. And so um, Susie approached me in 2005. And she had two older kids um, who had been through schools who had been kind of crushed through schools. Um, but then she had um, a daughter at the time who was five. And she just said, I, there's no school out there where I want to put put her. And so she asked me to help her. And that was, we started, she started talking about it in 2005 and just started saying, I really want to start an elementary school. And, um, by the spring of 2006, we, we had decided to go full on and and start a school. We, um, we opened our doors in 2006 with 11 kids. They were kindergarten and first grade. We had two teachers. So it was like a one room schoolhouse. Um, but the idea was that um, she really wanted an environmental school. And my experience was in schools where students were really at the center of the education. So that's what I wanted. So I really wanted it to be a student-centered school. Um, so we combined our forces and started a student-centered environmental school. Um, and it hasn't been easy. And it wasn't something that we ever thought would get us to where we are today. And Jeff, when you were thinking about this whole plan to to embark on this uh, challenging endeavor, what was top of your mind in terms of um, the priorities for how the school was going to be set up and, and run? Well, I came in about seven years ago. So I was not a part of the master plan to get it off the ground. Uh, but we were married when we started it. <laughs> we, we were. <laughs> that's right. So... Um, you know, as, as soon as Rebecca and I got married uh, 14, 15 years ago, she left me. <laughs> and uh, she left me for her sister, and she moved to California um, to help her start the school. And, you know, one of the little, you know, when they got off, when they got the school off the ground, it was so difficult for them because they were trying to do something very different. And they were trying to go against the grain of our normal traditional school mentality. And um, what a lot of people don't know um, about the starting of Mew School 
was for the first seven years, Rebecca and I were living in Kansas and Rebecca was a week in LA, a week in Kansas for seven years and then spent most of her summers out here. So it was a lot to get it off the ground, Mm. Um, especially when you're doing something that is so against the grain and against the traditional mindset of school. So I was always supportive from the get go and, and wanted it to be something uh, big as they did. And then when I had the opportunity to join them about seven years ago, um, I don't know if I thought about it much. I said yes. And then I think I thought about it later. <laughs> and it's like, okay, now wait a minute. What did I say yes to? So, But when Jeff came on board, it, it was really amazing because, and I always use this analogy, when Susie and I started the school, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, I mean, I had started a school in the Midwest, but it was for young young children, not an elementary school, and not dealing with the caliber and the quality, I won't even use the word quality, but the caliber of parents out here, you know, that's been very different. But when Jeff came on board, he really grounded us like we were, and I didn't even use the analogy yet. But the idea was that we were flying an airplane that wasn't built. And so when Jeff came on board, he kind of put the airplane on the ground and put the wings on and put the landing gear on and, and really helped ground us into a more systematized school you know, because Susie and I were just the visionaries, mm-hmm. and we had this whole grand idea at thirty thousand feet, and we literally had to come down. and And he's he's just really helped us, um, just really become a very bona fide school. And so, Jeff, you got to avoid the early messy startup days of this this school because you know we were discussing this earlier as well. As much as um, I mean, I talk to a lot of food entrepreneurs on this podcast, but all the lessons, whether you're a food entrepreneur or you've launched any sort of initiative on your own or any creative endeavor, it, it starts with, with, a, with an idea. And yeah. it sounds like you and Susie had that idea in the beginning. And then the actual process of turning that into something um, real can involves a lot of mistakes. Typically, yeah. it involves a lot of surprises and obviously a never-ending list of challenges. Sure. And I'm sure that that is still true um, because a, a school, like anything else, but especially a school, has so many moving parts and so many things that can and can't go wrong right. on any given day that it is... But it's a question of, you know, I guess the first few years must have been laying that foundation testing the vision, and then eventually, yeah, I guess Jeff got to install a, a more robust engine and, and kind of help it take off. Yeah. Yes. Well, they had their philosophy, and they knew the direction that they wanted to go, and that they wanted to go, and they've always had a very strong vision. And I think one of the things that I was able to do is just come in and say, okay, let's put this vision into something that's understandable, that's something that people can see. And that's what the, f- the five pillars were birthed about the time, uh, about seven years ago. So then we then we created the blueprint mm-hmm. after we got the pillars going. And the blueprint is something that replaces our grade card um, because we don't uh, churn out regular report cards. Uh, our parents get blueprints twice a year. That's a 12-page document that is a narrative assessment and report to the parent about how their student is doing, not only academically, but also socially, emotionally, and uh, and how they're also learning about sustainability. So uh, that's that's kind of seven years ago. And then was it eight years ago that we moved on to this campus? Mm-hmm. And so this is the third campus that the school's been on. 
And so it's kind of grown and outgrown the previously two spa- the, the previous two spaces that they were located at. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to dive deeper into the into the blueprints as well as your five pillars. But you know, before we we kind of go into what makes the actual school so unique, um, I, I know this may be a big question to start off with. But you know, what is the problem with education? You know, you know, like, <laughs> I, I know there's probably a never ending list, but to, you know, really to sum it up, it, the way I see it, it's like we're training kids and you know this is the same thing i said when i first saw this space and learned about your approach over here is that you know we're i was i looked at school and education as you're training kids for occupations versus actually creating smart critical thinkers who are able to perceive the world and interpret it in interesting ways and see possibilities and find solutions to all the problems out there Uh, what was your you know I, I know you had this vision in the beginning. Um, what what were the problems you found with education that you felt that Muse could hopefully do differently? So the biggest thing for me, and I this may age me or date me or whatever you say a little bit, but when I was in graduate school, I learned about a philosophy out of Italy where students were really the center of the program. Students were listened to. Um, the teachers followed their lead as opposed to the teachers teaching down and and the kids having to regurgitate and to take a test and those types of things. So I just became very enamored with with that model of, of teaching and learning because I felt like what I learned in school was very, very one-size-fits-all. And it was very much about you know, it's the test taking and everyone fits into this one, one box, you know, there aren't several boxes, but one box. Um, I didn't like that. And so uh, Susie and I, when we started Muse, the, again, the idea was that we would see every student for an individual, we would see them as bringing something to the table that was very different than you have, or you have, or I have, or she has. And so that's the goal, you know, really to to focus on what kids bring to the table, but then also instilling in them a confidence about what they have to bring to the table. And that helps them be critical thinkers. That helps them be problem solvers. Um, and so I think that's where where we came into thinking about, about Muse. And I mean, education today is broken. You know, we're still teaching the way we taught 150 years ago. And with Muse... We have an, an ever-evolving philosophy. So we're not going to just keep doing the same thing because we think that that's how we should do it. If we need to change and adapt with the times, then we're going to do that. Um, schools aren't doing that, you know, and, and things are really scary right now, especially with the climate. Mm-hmm. And so we have to shake things up. And I, I don't know if you want to speak to anything. But. Yeah, I think your, your first question was what was the differentiator or what was that well, something that makes you different or what sets the school apart. Yes. And, and so I think the, the short answer to that is Rebecca and Susie, because mm-hmm. as the founders and the, and the visionaries of the school, they're the one that started down this path and they're up, they're creating a school that's going up against a test prep industry that mm-hmm. grosses more money than the NFL. And this test prep industry, their sole goal is to scare the crap out of parents so that they fall in line with this, what I like to refer to, sit, get, regurgitate philosophy that doesn't create thinkers, doesn't create entrepreneurs, it doesn't create a a self 
actualized person. It just creates a robot. And, you know, one of the stories that Rebecca and Susie can tell you that's happened to them over the last 14 years is they've had a lot of experts come in and tell them what they should ought and need to do based on this old traditional educational mindset. And they have stayed the course with their own beliefs and values and thoughts around how they wanted to create the school, which is why we ended up here now um, being recognized uh, by a group called 100 for the last two or three years in a row as one of the 10 most innovative schools in the world. But you don't do that unless you have visionaries who will stay to the course, Mm -hmm. because there's a ton of cash out there trying to get parents to um, do this test prep thing. Mm-hmm. And right now it's it's killing our kids. I mean, kids are doing two Literally. Three, yeah. I mean, yeah. suicide rates are on the rise. Um, kids say that the, their depression and anxiety is directly related to school. And, and parents measure the success of the school as how miserable their student is. And so I like to refer to this kind of uh, historical memory Because parents are like, well, I didn't like school, and school was traumatizing for me, so how about I traumatize my own student, my own kid, you know? And and then you're right, we're not preparing students for the world that they're going to actually live in. You know, these kids right now who are in, they're three, four, five years old, they may never see a live truck driver. They may never see a, a live person at a grocery store or go to a grocery store. They may never drive a car. So there's so many jobs that are going to be for them, but they're going to have to be very nimble and flexible and ever evolving, or they're not going to be prepared. Mm-hmm. And I, I just met with someone yesterday who was, he has a corporation and he hires these college graduates. And as they were coming out, he said, he just talked to us, this interview, this graduate from Purdue. He said, the dude could not think. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could he had no ability to think outside the box. He was just singular focused on, you know, specific tasks. So... Um, I'm sure he had a very beefed up resume too. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. They have great resumes yeah. and they can sit at a cubicle and memorize content yeah. and regurgitate it for you like nobody's business. Yeah. But ask them to be entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And creative. I mean, yeah, I don't want to make this too much about me, but I, 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 it does bring up something about, you know, I, you know, did everything I was required to did, did pretty decent in school, went through college went to law school, went got a master's degree in law, got had a really interesting career, I thought. Um, but since I left that to kind of be more entrepreneurial in the last, I would say, 10 years since I got more interested in food, I've, I feel like I've gotten more of an education now mm-hmm. since I opened up my mind um, than before where I found that was, it was it, it's a path for, for, for some, it's a path for many actually, uh, but it's a rigid path. And I realized there was something I was always not happy about, that I was not doing things that I felt passionate about. Yeah. And it eventually had to just say, well, I got to do it now. I'm never going to do it. So I'm going to follow my passion. Pretty late in life compared to your kids who are doing that right in the beginning. And, yeah. and I think that's a good segue into your pillars because, I mean, the fact that you look at each kid as an individual and each child as someone unique who has their own path and a, a path that may continuously evolve and change, right? doesn't mean because you're into, uh, you know, you're, you could be into cars at age five or six and doesn't mean you're going to be into cars at age 15. Right. Um, so tell me more about that. How did that evolve into these pillars and how does that kind of become... Uh, a part of your the way you teach um, the students here. But I also would want to know, how do you approach standardized testing as well as have the flexibility that you have built into the program? 
I will. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to just kind of how we got to where we are, and then maybe you can talk about the pillars and the testing. Okay, um, cool. Because I did want to share, you know, like what you talked about, how later in life you've, now you're going towards your passion. And so one of the things that when we started the school, and even before that, something that I always loved, you know, around this model that I learned about from Italy is that kids were kids were respected enough as two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, that people were watching them and saying, wow, they're really interested in shoes. Okay, so let's talk about shoes and the makeup of the shoe, and, and let's talk about the science of the shoe and the math of the shoe and the history of the shoe and the social-emotional intelligence, ha-ha, of the shoe. But, but really respecting what kids want and what kids love and how yeah. to make that into a learning process. So passion-based learning, and Jeff will talk about that, is one of our pillars. Um, and that was something that Susie and I started the school with, is let's really, really focus on what blows a kid's skirt up. Like, what makes you dance in the street? Um, and we all, I think, sitting at this table can say, what am I really passionate about? But we've had to search, you know. But imagine being a three-year-old and saying, what do you want to study right now? Um, and then second to that is the sustainability piece, you know. And really, that's the umbrella of the school. Um, that's, that's, that's where the food part comes in. That's where you know, living off the land comes from. That's where our seat to table program comes from. And those, I think, were, were the two biggest ones. Um, and then the social-emotional development and really looking at the inner sustainability of the kid, you know, and what, how do we help them develop that, but who they are as an individual. So imagine, imagine having that as a person and then as an 18-year-old going out into the world and knowing who you are inside, but then also knowing what's outside of the world and how you're going to conquer that. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, when I talk about it, 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 I love it. You know, it really makes me happy to think about that's what we're, that's what we're instilling in kids. Yeah. I mean, the radical thing about Muse, and it's so sad, <laughs> is that we listen to our students. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't tell you how many parents come in here and they'll say, you know, my kid doesn't have a passion. And then as soon as that parent leaves mm. and our, and our teacher's like, so what are you passionate about? Blah. You know I mean? It's just like, so, um, we've conditioned our educational, uh, monster to not listen to students and not, and then, and not live a passion based life. And then we want wonder why we have depression. We have anxiety. We have bankruptcies. We have, you have all these things that happens later on in life because, you know, students are trying to fit in this box that someone else created for them. So um, if you want, I can kind of run through our philosophy and explain the five pillars. I think and then great, I think yeah. the other question that, um, that I want to really uh, attend to is the standardized test <laughs> uh, uh, myth and uh, that whole thing that's out there. So, um, so the five pillars first is academics. Uh, you know, Muse school is a fully accredited school by the Western association of schools and colleges. Our academic standards are mirrored from the California state standards. Now the pa passion based learning pillar is how we teach the academic content. So we take the passion that the student has and we put the academic content into that passion. So you can teach any academic standard through surfing, through whales, through fairies, through what, whatever, whatever you want, because what you'll see in our classrooms is there's not individual, there's not a, a uniform of textbooks and everyone's doing the exact same thing. Everyone's getting their academic content through their passions. So you see a higher rate of student 
acceptance and a higher rate of student engagement and lower rate of power struggle between student and teacher because if I want to read about whales or soccer or fairies or whatever, I can read at whatever grade level I want about that versus everyone's going to read this book. Then you get the power struggles and things like that. The this next pillar is communication. We use a tool called the process communication model that was developed by a guy named Tavy Kaler, and that helps us individualize how we speak to the students, how they set up their learning space for themselves, and how we negotiate and keep the students engaged and motivated throughout the day. And that that communication tool that we have is also offered to all of our parents. And then we have public workshops for folks as well that can come and learn about the process communication model. The fourth pillar is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is the number one predictor in a person's life. So if you think about when you, when you were on your journey, I was listening to your story. The only way you were able to be successful is if you believed in yourself. And so a person's ability to believe and their capability to be successful is the, the, the indicator of a person's success in life. Mm-hmm. And how we teach efficacy here at Muse is we teach students how to be open, resourceful, and persistent. And then the final pillar is, as Rebecca stated, was sustainability. And uh, we believe that teaching these students how to not only survive, but how to adapt and how to live in the world that we have left them is critical. And so not only are we on a sustainable campus where we're 90% off the grid, we don't use toxins, we don't use pesticides, we're 100% plant-based with primarily organic and non-GMO foods. We also have standardized curriculum for sustainability in every single classroom from three-year-olds, two-and-a-half-year-olds, all the way through 12th grade. And as a matter of fact, it's mandatory for our high school graduates to receive a MUSE a sustainability certificate in order to receive their diploma. So sustainability is as important to us as math, science, mm-hmm. reading, and things like that. So that's just kind of an over, you can find more, uh, a, a more depth about each one of those pillars on our website. Yeah. Um, and now the question about standardized testing. So hold on. What? What'd you say? I'm <laughs> just kidding. What? No, I'm just laughing. Oh. Standardized testing. What? What's that? Huh? Huh? So I don't know about you, but when is the last time in your job you had to sit down and memorize content and fill in bubbles and then you got your paycheck? Never. Not anytime recently. And it's still, it's, tests still give me nightmares. So, yeah, man. you know, I still think about my days in college when I had to memorize stuff. Yeah. And, and I will wake up in a cold sweat thinking yeah. about wow. it now. And that was many, many years ago. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and there's no scientific evidence that proves your ability to take a test is any indicator that you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so this whole myth that we've been sold about ACT, SAT, I mean, we've got parents going to prison because they're paying off ACT um, people to take tests for their kids and stuff like that. It's, it's crazy. Um, so we have sent 100% of our high school graduates have been accepted to the university of their choice. We've sent kids to USC, UCLA, Bard, NYU, Pitts or all, all the any school university that students want to be want to be accepted to they've been accepted to universities love our students because they don't look like everyone else they're very very different and here's how we go about that when you enter ninth grade at Muse you go down uh, a four year plan that we call you prep not mom and daddy prep you know not what you should do prep 
Y-O-U, U-Prep. And it leads you down the path on what you want to do post your Muse School experience. In that, during that course of that four years, you may say, you know what, I want to go to NYU. Well, guess what? NYU requires GPA and they require SAT. So now we can individualize that course for that student so they can prepare to take the SAT. And then our blueprint that we create, which is a narrative construct, we transcribe that narrative construct into a GPA so that the student will have a GPA and then we can prepare them for the SAT. And you know what's really freaking crazy is our students who haven't been in this test prep world, they kill it on the ACT, SAT. They have no problems with that. Um, And when they write their applications and things like that, the universities absolutely, they, they love our students. You know, uh, 10 of our students just got back from Guatemala where they went on a trip with a group of doctors called Mending Kids. And they spent seven days down there with doctors helping out with day surgeries. They helped perform over 100 surgeries um, in this third world country. And so, and, and our kids were killing it down there. I mean, mm-hmm. we had 11th graders and 10th graders in operating rooms, you know, helping out with surgeries and things like that. So that's success. That kid is going to be very successful at university and is going to be very successful post-university. And it's not because he took a test. Right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's not yeah. because he got a grade. It's not because he right. got an A-plus while he was in Guatemala. Because one of the yeah. fears would obviously be, and I think you answered my question really, is that, um, you know, this is, this is all great, but eventually they're going to come up against this, this machine, which is the standardized testing that is required by most universities. And then suddenly all of the great lessons and uh, flexible thinking and critical thinking that they've developed is thrown out of the window. And now they're put into this box of preparing for the SATs. And, and, it, and it kind of comes to a crashing halt. And, it, and they struggle. Mm-hmm. One would assume that it could be possible. But you're saying that, in fact, you found the opposite to be true. And they're just more prepared to take on this challenge. Absolutely. And then there are 1,500 universities in America right now that are test optional Mm -hmm. and that you can write essays and you can do interviews as a way to get accepted to university. We just had a student graduate last year who was accepted and is attending Bard right now. And she chose the test optional path and she had to write four essays that were 10 pages long about eight topics, whether eight topics that Bard chose and that she had to choose four and write uh, four 10 page papers about these topics. And that's how she got accepted to BART. And we, Rebecca was up speaking at the Omega Institute and I tagged along. Uh, cause when, you know, Rebecca's usually out on the road doing these things, I'm the arm candy. And so, uh, I, 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 <laughs> yes, you are. Um, and and yes, I, I do are. a really good job yeah, of sitting great. and watching, yeah. but we stopped and we saw, um, Morgan, Morgan at mm-hmm. BART and she's, she's killing it. She's doing great up there. So, yeah. And especially in this, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to go back to the days of, of trying to get into law school and all of that. But, you know, once you've meet those those basic criteria and you've you've hit all those test scores and you've got certain GPA, um, then it comes down to, like, why you're a unique candidate. And that's why I think a lot of students struggle because yeah. they're just like, what? I mean, yeah. I just did what I was told. Absolutely. Exactly. Like, I don't yeah. know how to think beyond that yeah. now. And so... You know, even listening to and so the blueprints kind of form your report cards, really, and even though they're not really well, they are our report. They cards. are yeah. report so we don't have a report card; we have a blueprint, okay. and mm-hmm. that's twelve pages. And then the blueprint is followed <clears throat> by a culmination. 
So twice a semester, twice a year, the students will get their blueprint and go through that and have a parent-teacher conference with that blueprint, and then they will culminate. And then the culmination is where the students have to present Mm -hmm. how they've done all five of their pillars throughout the entire semester. And these culminations are for three-year-olds, for first graders, for sixth graders. Everybody culminates. And so one of the unique things is if you walk around our school and you walk into a kindergarten class – and I just gave a, a tour yesterday with about 12 people. Mm-hmm. We walked into the kindergarten class and I said, ask whatever questions you want to these kindergartners. And they were blown away because our, our students can communicate. Mm. They can hold conversations with adults. They can say, you know what? I don't know, but I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> so I think there's a certain level of maturity too that, that puts them in a really wonderful place when they go to college. And I think that's why they're able to succeed mm-hmm. because they're not used to being in that box so they're able to think outside, and I think I think that requires maturity, and I and it also requires that confidence of knowing who they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's huge, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, learning about your and even when the first time I heard about Muse and, and the work you're doing here, and of course now listening to you talk about it, uh, it it reminds me of um, one of my favorite books, which is uh, All This Huxley's Island. It's really different essays and his philosophy, sort of. St- through the lens of a, of a sort of a, a thin storyline. It's basically about this island, this, this utopian island in, called Pala, and he touches on different issues in, in, in the book, but he talks about education. And this, this part, I really I remember reading it for the first time years ago. There's a section where he says, um, when the, I think the protagonist is walking around and trying to figure out how things run in this island, and they say, the first lesson we teach kids, and, and this is to your point about sustainability and why it's so crucial. Uh, In the book, it says that the first lesson they teach kids is that nothing exists in isolation Mm -hmm. and that everything is about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I actually wrote this down before I came here today because I, I... Everything about Muse reminds me about what I read and vaguely Mm -hmm. still remember about that book and about their approach to education. But, But in the book, it says that never give children the chance of imagining that anything exists in isolation, show them relationships Mm. in the woods, in the fields, in the ponds, Mm. in the streams, in the village, in the country around it. Rub it in. And I think that's sustainability because Mm -hmm. if you truly understand that everything is a continuing, interconnected, ever-evolving, flowing process, you will see the world in a very sort of different way. Yeah. And, and without even getting into, you know, what the spiritual implications yeah. of that is, let's just keep it to yeah. ecology. Mm-hmm. If you truly understand ecology or you at least pay attention to ecology, you can sort of understand how most things work, how most systems work. And, you know, how do you make kids to be systems-based thinkers? And I think right. ecology is a great first lesson. So the fact that you have sustainability built in as one of your big pillars and, of course... You know, I could spend 60 minutes just talking about the food over here and, and the, you know, your plant-based focus, but I didn't want to because I think there are some much bigger lessons over here that that touch on this broader issue of sustainability and how, while, you know, passion-driven education, listening to kids, and then you're layering on top of the fact that you're teaching them how to see um, how things are interconnect. So, I mean, I'd love your, to hear your thoughts on that. I don't know if you're familiar with the book Island, but yeah. it reminded me a bit of that. No, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the book, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reminded of a story um, that a parent shared with me oh, four or five years ago. They, he, and he came up to me as a father, and he's like, "Jeff, I have to talk to you. This is urgent. It's an emergency." And I'm like, uh, 
Mm-hmm. All right, what happened? And he's like, you know, my kid's in kindergarten and his passion's rockets. And the teachers told him that he could, uh, that he could pursue his passion to build a rocket and fly to the moon. And I said, all right. And, and this kind of relates to what you're talking about. <laughs> and he was really upset because he said, Jeff, that's not possible. Logistically, that's not possible. Someone needs to tell him he can't build a rocket and he can't go to the moon. So I was able to talk dad down a little bit, but I think a lot of parents fall into that, mm-hmm. to that thing where they start telling kids what they can't do. Mm-hmm. And the biggest gift that dad could have given their kid was, okay, how can I support? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, you weren't able to build a rocket? You didn't go to the mood? Why? Because you didn't have this. You didn't have you didn't, that system yeah. that re- you required to do this, you didn't have. And that kid fails and learns so much. But we're so conditioned... Parents are so conditioned and education institutions are so conditioned to say, you know, Rebecca, you cannot build that rocket. And then the kid's like, okay, well, now uh, I can't, you know, then the mindset right there is I can't. Mm -hmm. And I start to look to adults to see what I can do versus learning about the systems, about the world and and, and failing forward and having the benefit of that failure. Yeah. Yeah. And and have you also learned that the focus on, you know, your focus on food and sustainability and helping students understand where their food comes from. How has that led to any, I mean, any examples you can share of how that's led to uh, the students making connections to other issues and how everything sort of does connect with each other. Yeah. So it's funny. I was going to, I was going to share about that. Um, Yeah. We grow food, you know, so we, we do that here. We've always done that. Um, One of the things that, we are really focusing on is food justice, social justice, you know, women's rights, and how all of that can connect together. Um, we have a student at the high school who is doing a lot of outreach with a food pantry, and um, and also some people who were formerly homeless. So she's going and working with those populations. Um, I think that's an example of of bringing that full circle and going, wow. You know, Jeff and I were just um, at Skid Row last week, and we were talking about, you know, we want to build a program to take the kids down there, you know, and show them and and have them grow food up on this ridge where we have all of this land and all of these garden beds where we can grow food, prepare it, and then take it to Skid Row and pass it out. Because it's so simple, Mm -hmm. and yet it's so profound for these kids. Um, I think that the food piece, um, I think the plant-based food piece is also something that is taking our kids to a higher level of compassion. And I don't think that's easy to come by for mm-hmm. kids. And and I think learning about where their food comes from, but also learning about each other. You know, our mission statement is um, inspiring and preparing, you know, ourselves, one another, and the planet um, to live consciously. So I think learning about self, other, and planet is just this amazing way of, of compassion, of interconnectedness. It's not always easy. Um, but that's the goal, you know, that's the goal when they leave school is to hopefully they have that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful setting too. I mean, do you have, um, I mean, I don't see this necessarily in one of your pillars, but I, I, I do get the sense that it, it may not be such a left field question to ask, but, um, to what extent does, you know, mindfulness and Mm. sort of that kind of permeate into your thinking and your classrooms, I think the the mindfulness and the meditation falls under our efficacy pillar, mm-hmm. and and we do have, um, you know, morning meetings. We have what we call musery, where we walk students through 
numerous aspects of being self-efficacious and mindfulness and meditation is one of those. And I think we're, we're being so much more intentional and deliberate about our older kids, you know, as they, as they go into adolescence, because there's such, there's such a high level of stress and anxiety right now. And one of the things that we, we really focus on at the middle and high school is, is that whole idea around restorative justice, you know, really looking at what's going on inside, what's going on inside, why, why, why is this happening? Why are you doing what you're doing? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's really important. It's that compassion piece. It's, it's not, let's, let's suspend you, let's expel you. No, let's really find out what's at the root of this. And I, I think when you do that with one student, the other students see that. Um, so just by osmosis, you know, they're all going, okay, yeah, what is going on with Joey? You know, why is that happening? And then coming together as a group and talking about that. Um, at, at our lower, at our lower grades and the really young grades, you know, two years old, three years old, four years old, they're already learning about meditation and how to be quiet and how to be still, um, how to focus on a word, how to, how to be mindful and also how to use affirmation statements, which mm -hmm. is so cute. And just talking about themselves and I am great and I, I am worthy or, you know, those types of things. Um, yeah. and I think that's important to start young. Yeah, that's, you know, that's such an important point. And, um, you know, of course, I, I think in, in the year 2020, there's no way we can't uh, talk about uh, what um, we're doing with education or the future without also considering the role technology is going to play in the future. So how does that fit into uh, the way you approach uh, education? I mean, technology is in some ways going to replace many industries, but at the same time, it's it can be a tool that can be really useful in a classroom, but at the same time, we all know technology is also a huge distraction. How do you incorporate technology or you know, prepare kids for this future where a lot of our thinking and, and processing is largely going to be outsourced to computers and yeah. machines? Uh, the screen, screens are the biggest crisis that education is facing right now. Um, because students are absolutely addicted to the screens and parents are having a struggle getting their kids off of, of screens. And so I know that we are, we are grappling with it. And I know every education, uh, institutions grappling with it. I know parents are struggling with it. We don't, you know, we've created these computing power with this screen that is so addictive and we're putting it in the hands of these uh, brains that are not fully developed. And I don't know that anyone has any great answers. I mean, there's good answers out there. Um, take them away and don't let them do it is one thing, but you, it, it's part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have to balance <clears throat> that and give students tools on how to learn what the technology can be used for. Yeah. And you also have to, you know, they have to just write and they have to read books and use pens and papers because if you know we're seeing students come through that they are their learning is prohibited because everything is done on screens and then parents are having a hard time pulling them away from the tv and the ipad and the phone at night and so what we do at muse is we really focus a lot on paper and pencil and like you like you said earlier our kids are outside 50 to 60 percent of the time mm -hmm. in nature because uh, there's a lot of nature deficit um, going around 
uh, with our students. And so that's what we do. We and and the technology for us, we don't really introduce till the second grade, mm-hmm. and and then we introduce it in a very controlled manner, and it's very it, it's used minimally. So it's uh, a very delicate a, dance. It's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a it big is. Question. It is. I mean, but I also think about what's going on in our world right now, and you think about. You know our electric car infrastructure and trips to the trips to Mars, and you know, and like I just keep thinking about that. Meanwhile, living off the land, and then compassion and consciousness, and like how what's that going to look like for our kids? And they have to be, they have to be prepared. You know, it's uh, we have a parent who talks about future proofing, you know, and and really proofing future proofing our kids. And what's it going to look like in five years? It's Mm -hmm. not going to look like it looks right now. It's just not. So I think it's a very, very delicate dance um, because we're going to be using technology big time and not just screens and computers. Mm -hmm. Um, And even in the five years since we've gone plant-based, the technology around plant-based foods has changed so (laughs) dramatically in five years. And the products that have come out. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's your, you know, since you mentioned food and 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 technology, obviously, I, I talk to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who are working on the cutting edge of technology in that space. Um, what is your approach to, to food over here? Is, is the, um, yeah, just how would you describe, of course, we know it's plant-based in, in the school, but um, how are you ensuring that it is not only tastes great, but also, you know, nutritionally balanced? Yeah. And what are your views on some of the cutting edge new products <laughs> that are available and how yeah. much does that make a part of your cafeteria so we have a brilliant chef and i would say 90 percent of our menu is whole foods i mean it's not i don't mean whole foods the store or the market yeah. i just mean it, it's whole foods it's all made from scratch we do use some of those products which as you and i were talking about earlier are not the greatest products in the whole world um but i think the cell-based meats and 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 all of the the processed burgers that are coming out they're good. I just don't think that you want to eat them all the time, you know. Um, so I, we're, we're organic. We're non-GMO. Um, we also have had, like Neil came in and Dean Ornish and, and those people, they come in and they, they will look at our menu and they'll tell us, you know, is it, is, it, is it nutritious enough? It is. I mean, we know that fats are in there. We know that proteins are in there. We know that it's low salt. Um so I don't think we we run into any fear of making sure that a student is getting the nutrition that they need, um, just because everything is so beautifully made and, and made from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I would describe it. I think it's yummy. I think our lunch program is probably the most nutritious lunch any school system has in the world. We, we've been, sorry, let me just say this yeah. really quick. We've been, we were just awarded the Green Restaurant Association. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I do. The yeah. greenest I restaurant in the world. Yeah, yeah. For sorry. the fourth straight year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, sorry, and second place is a couple hundred points behind us. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, when we went plant-based and we continue to do this, you know, we've got these great professionals and doctors who help us vet it so that it is mm-hmm. highly nutritional. And here's the thing with plant-based foods, because it's new, you get kind of one shot and it has to taste good. Yeah. So, you know, we have a killer salad bar every day that accompanies the main dish because, you know, one of the mythologies about, oh, you're, you're plant-based. Oh, you just eat salads mm-hmm. all the time. Well, I mean, you know, we, we do this killer mac and cheese that's made out of butternut squash. And it's made from Whole Foods, and it's like a fan favorite. The kids absolutely love it. Um, so the number one menu item right now in the school is the miso soup. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's the kids' hands down their favorite food. I know I it's so great. Yeah, 
Yeah. I would have assumed like there would be plant based nuggets or something. Yeah. I know, right? No, yeah. No, <laughs> I mean yeah. I don't know how much they love the processed meats. I mean really? I think they I think mm-hmm. they're okay, but but it's true, the miso soup is, is they love that. Yeah. That's a fan favorite. And yeah. I think they we have a burrito bar and we do a potato bar. I mean And today we had pizzoli. Yeah, today which we had pizzoli. Is ridiculously good. And so the uh-huh. food is really good here. But again, we come at it from an environmental perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, animal agriculture is the second leading contributor to climate change. And when you come at it from that, we let the students and the parents figure out the nutritional stuff on their own Mm -hmm. and the animal rights stuff on their own, Mm -hmm. where we just share the facts about climate change. And I think that is, that's something that we've been able to be leaders in this space because people didn't know. I mean, I, 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 we do tours all the time and people just don't know the contribution that animal agriculture has to climate change. They don't, it's just, it doesn't compare for them for yeah. whatever reason. Right. So. Every student at Muse, though, knows why they are eating one plant-based meal a day for the planet. Yeah. Yeah. They know OMD, which is cool. Yeah. You know, that's another thing that they take and they take it home and they tell their parents, we need to eat this way. Mm-hmm. And again, it's as, as we were chatting about earlier, it, it is one meal um, yeah. a day. And it's, you know, you're not, you're not trying to convert the kids into any particular mm-hmm. dogma or mm-hmm. way of thinking but necessarily but you're just educating them about the facts and Mm -hmm. serving them delicious food and then then the rest is kind of up to them and of course their parents as well so Mm -hmm. so uh, imagine when we grow this franchise and we've got a couple hundred schools around and they're all eating Mm plant-based the the impact that that's going to have on climate change and the impact that's going to have on students as we start to grow and franchise this school uh nationally and internationally yeah you perfectly laid up my my next question which is about (laughs) your expansion plan and 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 even before we dive into what that looks like, and and I know you have another school opening up soon, a new franchise school. Um, what are some of the biggest lessons you've sort of learned so far? What has worked? What hasn't worked? What are you still experimenting with? The plan-based thing is one example that's very clearly now been in place for a few years, and and I'm sure initially you got some pushback from parents, but now I, I'm sure it's it's pretty widely accepted that that's that's a good thing to do and it's good for the kids and it's good for the planet mm-hmm. um yeah looking back what what do you think here now about in your 14th year what have you learned uh if you could kind of sum that up and and kind of what are you experimenting with and then what are your expansion plans as you kind of look on mm-hmm. as you try to make this go global really yeah well i will unequivocally say that we are not experimenting with children <laughs> and so it's a, uh, it's a wrong word to use yeah in a so podcast, there's none of that happening cool. so. that's why he makes the big box. So, <laughs> i don't know rebecca what have you learned have you learned anything no you know what i've learned i have learned to go back to the basics like i think about being a mom and being an educator and you know i think the biggest thing for me is is to keep it simple and to keep going back to what you know when your gut is right. And we've always been on the cutting edge, always been on the cutting edge. And 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 people tried to pull us down, and they tried to pull us down. And and I think persistence has has really paid off. Um, and I guess what I've learned is is just keep going, you know, especially if it's something that you really believe in. And, and we are, we, we, Jeff and I were entrepreneurs before Muse. And so I think knowing that, knowing that we're doing the right thing, we're not hurting anybody, um, but that we are doing something based in science and that 
just to keep going. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Based in science and, and based on um, what parents want right now, you know, our, our market research indicates that parents really want a premium early childhood mm-hmm. education and they want what we're offering, which is I think we're in the right, right time and right space to offer this platform in places around the United States and the world because parents are craving it. And especially the younger Gen X and the millennial parent, they don't want what they had, which is different than the older Gen X and the baby boomer who are like, you know what, just go on and just be miserable like I was, mm-hmm. buck up. You know, mm-hmm. the, the millennial has a little bit more insight into that. And so mm-hmm. they have a little bit more insight in what they want for their, for their student. Yeah. And, and so what's next with uh, this expansion plan? And, um, yeah, I know you announced it this year. What can we expect? And for someone listening who, who, who thinks, you know, they want to get a Muse school to their city, yeah, what would you like to tell them? Go to museglobal.org. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I see us, I mean, I, I don't think that we thought that it would explode like this. Um, the interest has been pretty consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a bad problem at all. But I, I see us all over the country and all over the world um, because we're getting such an interest all over. Yeah. So our, and our goal now is we really need to, it would benefit us greatly to really start to educate um, the places where we want to expand in. Mm-hmm. And, and our two places that we want to expand is, you know, Southern California and Northern California. That's where a lot of the need is. That's where a lot of the parents with early childhood uh, students are. And so we've got to educate the public on, you know, how they can get in touch with us, like I can say, and how they can own one of these schools. And, you know, we're looking for entrepreneurs, you know, we're looking for partners who are like-minded like the, this, who want to go out and make this change. And the plant-based aspect is just one aspect mm-hmm. of it. Um, like I, I mentioned, our five pillar aspect is really who we are. That's that's our big um, umbrella that all this stuff uh, uh, falls within. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's um, and I'm and I'm it's it's amazing that you've taken the time that you've taken till before embarking on this next step, because you've you've had students go through the program. You have students in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if anyone's graduated college yet, but and um, uh, and I think at the end of this year. Okay, so you're getting maybe, to that point. Yeah, I or, think we, so. or maybe our high school's in year. its third or fourth year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we got one more yeah. year. One more year. Wow. So yeah. over, over a decade of of, of um, building the foundations for what is Muse Global right now, and then to be able to then take those learnings and then scale it up, which you know, kind of going back to what we said in the beginning, you were you were building this plane. It's kind of like <laughs> launching a startup. Yeah, uh, it is. And then you know, Jeff came on board and he's putting a little bit more structure and some. Um, and kind of taken your vision and and probably created a more uh, a, a stronger framework around yes, that vision. Absolutely. And now the next step, like with with any, you know, it, it the, the comparisons are so similar. And I mean, to any scaling any business, is you've got this prototype now. You've created the blueprint, and you've without experimenting, right. <laughs> <laughs> you've right. you, you've you've tested it and validated it, and, um, and and now you can you can ready you can be ready to expand it. And I think. That is such an important step because, you know, I felt like when, even when I first heard about this and a lot of people were talking about Muse School and, and I, and I, of course, heard about it through Susie initially. Uh, the first thing people were saying is that we need more of this. We need more of this. And, I, and I'm glad you've taken the time to, to really make sure you knew what you were doing and that you had kind of tweaked the model 
and had enough data points and, and sort of a, I wouldn't say proof of concept because that's all those words don't apply when it comes to education. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know what I mean is that you've now, you're now ready for that next step because, you know, like we said in the beginning, it's, it's, you are empowering, you're educating, you're inspiring the, the future change makers. And if we don't start doing that now, I mean, we know, I mean, you know this, since sustainability is one of your, your pillars and food is a big part of it, is um, we, we don't have that much time. Yeah. We have a decade or you know, 15 years, 12 years maybe, depending maybe. on which reports you read, mm-hmm. to do something to slow down the pace of climate change. And climate change is just one issue, but it's one issue that's connected to literally everything. Yeah, but I, 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 don't, I, don't, I think we're out of time. I think that, I think <laughs> that, I think that the, the, we're not going to make the changes required to, to turn things back in 10 or 15 years. So it's our job to prepare students for what the world is going to be like and how to, to, to live in this world that's going to be different because the, the, you know, the time has elapsed and, you know, we, we've even talked about the word sustainability is really not, um, it, it's past tense. Yeah. Because it's we're, we're, we we've kind of passed it. I think we were, we were given opportunities in in the early two thousands to make some changes, and now the I mean every every data point about climate change we always pass it. It's always worse than what we mm-hmm. think it's going to be. So now it's time to say, all right, how do we protect against it, be more sustainable, and start you know offering this to and teaching our children this and it's a disservice not to teach our children this Mm -hmm. you know and so our offering with our franchise is you can make money and do good Mm -hmm. and i think that's the type of entrepreneur that's the type of business owner that we want that's interested in making money but is interesting in really doing something great for students and great for the planet Um, because these students that we're creating they are the change makers Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are going to go out there and develop these technologies and help create the the way that we're going to have to live in this brand new world that humans have completely mm-hmm. um, done a facelift on. Yeah. And, and you said something really important there, which is um, sometimes people don't say that we may not, we may be out of time. People don't like to say that because it it is anti-hope almost. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I think there's... If it is the reality, we have to start preparing for it. Totally. And we have to be honest about it. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's all going to crash and burn one fine day. It's going to happen gradually. And yeah. we're already starting to feel it happening. I mean, yeah. wildfires are a constant threat around here. Right. Yeah. Um, the plastic bottle organizations, they're mm-hmm. not concerned in making less plastic bottles. I think we were in Paris speaking at the Sustainable Brands Conference, mm-hmm. and they talked about over the next 10 years – and I don't, I don't remember this verbatim, but the plastic bottles were going to increase by like ten or twenty percent or something like yeah. that. So, like those companies, they're not interested in that. Mm. And so, and so, I don't think it's our job to try to convert them. Right. Yeah. It's our right. job to try to say, okay, how do we live with this? And, and how do we make some of these changes? And maybe some entrepreneur will come up with, yeah. I know there's, um, Jaden has his his box, yeah, where he's delivering water through 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 paper and cardboard and it's way more sustainable than plastic. But I mean, these plastic water bottle uh, makers, they're making billions of dollars. They're not Mm going to change that. So how do we teach students how to adapt to that and hopefully start to cut into that a little bit? Yeah. I think adaptation is the big word. You know, I think how do we, I mean, that's, that's all it is. We have to teach them how to adapt because we're in Mm -hmm. it. We're in it. 
the Titanic has hit the iceberg. Mm. Not to use that as an analogy, but I just use it as an analogy. Um, yeah. We've hit it, you know, and it's 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 in it. And so how do we grab our life rafts and learn how to live in that cold water? I mean, yeah, we've hit it. And And it also goes back to why we can't be looking at our education system as just preparing um, people for jobs in factories. I yes. Mean, yeah, to put it mildly. Yeah. Instead to be entrepreneurial. In their own, not everyone's going to go out there and start a cutting-edge technology company. Many right. will. Right, right. But um, it's to think that this is the new world we're, we're entering where one, because of climate change, others because of artificial intelligence or other technologies, mm -hmm. certain industries and jobs just won't exist. Right. And you, the only way to prepare for the future is to be a well-rounded individual who can adapt to these changes, mm -hmm. who can think out of the box, who can create and who can contribute, yeah. who can problem solve. Yep. And that's the only way we're going to build a sustainable yeah. future. So, I mean, I close out every podcast with this question uh, and, and I think it's really, I'm really excited to hear what you're going to say about this, because as much as we've been kind of talking about doom and gloom a little bit and adapting to the fact that we've hit the iceberg and how do, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. Like, do we just sit and cry or do we, mm -hmm. you know, try to figure out where the, where the lifeboats are uh, and build some maybe if you have enough time. Um, but the last question I typically ask is, uh, and, and it comes from this, 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 the research that you are probably familiar with, which is we have about 7.6 billion people on the planet today, and we're going to be 10, 10 billion by the year 2050. Um, meat consumption and, and you know, f the, our unsustainable way of living is already at an incredible high in the developed world like here and is rising quickly in the developing world like China and India and Africa and elsewhere. And if you continue as business as usual, or even if we try to make some subtle changes, the, we're going to face a point in, in 50 years when there's 10 billion people on the planet where mm -hmm. we're just not going to be able to feed the world mm -hmm. and most of our systems are going to break down unless we start making changes today, which is exactly what we're talking about. And so that's why I think this, we're at this interesting point, you know, 30 years later in 2050, we're going to be completely shit out of luck or we're hopefully going to be in a better place. Um, if we get it right, or rather when, and some people criticize me for saying if sometimes because I need to be more optimistic about yeah. this, uh, when students from Muse School go out there and launch companies, become artists, become creators, become problem solvers, um, what is your vision for the future if we get it right? If we're able to somehow adapt, what do you see the world in 2050 looking like, especially given the mission that you're on to change education as well. What would be your utopian vision for 2050, given what we know about science and the realities of climate change, as well as about the, the growth plans you have for the school? I have a very simple answer. The yeah. best thing you can do for the environment is to start a school, a new school. So that's the, the hands down. If you want to change the environment, if you want to tackle these big global problems, you have to start a Muse Global School. So um, that's what you got to do. Give us a call. Well, here's the other thing. Um, ditto, ditto. Right. So but here, here's the other thing. I think that, you know, I don't actually believe we have a food problem. I think we have a food access problem mm -hmm. because about 40% of the food that we have in America is thrown it's away. Wasted, yeah. And so we've got to figure out a better equity-based system. And I think it's also... You know, this concept of doing good and making money is is where we are – that's what we're betting on, right? Because 
traditionally, for the last 100 years, business is about squeezing every dollar. And if I can pay you less, if I can take the jobs overseas, if I can throw away scraps and stuff like that, as long as like the bottom line, and I think hopefully the new mindset of some of these business owners and entrepreneurs is, I, I want to make money, yeah. absolutely. But how do I make money and also do good? And hope, that's a mind shift that has to happen. Um, and that's a, that's a business mind shift that has to happen. And businesses have to teach business in a very different way. Um, that's more than just about the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a five-year-old student, and her passion this semester is that she wants to save the planet. So... If we have a five-year-old here saying that, imagine, really imagine if we changed education to where all students were saying that, we're good. I think that's that's the vision to get behind for 2050. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and if the way to get there is um, by by launching more schools, then I think you know people need to get started right yeah. away. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can't fix any of these problems. You can't yeah. fix farming. You can't fix food access if you don't fix education. And and yeah. it seems like this almost unsolvable problem. But, you know, thankfully, you both and Susie as well embarked on this endeavor. And I think um, and I'm glad you're, you know, you're 14 years into this, this, this sort of attempt to tackle this, this unsolvable problem. And uh, and hopefully in the years ahead, other people are going to join on board, and and it, and you're going to actually make that future a reality. So, yeah. Yeah. thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you. And um, yeah, I, I wish I had kids. I'd be enrolling them into the school. <laughs> but I will I will spread the word. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. And thank I you. love the work you're doing here. Oh man, thank you're you very so welcome. much. Thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.